Well, good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. I, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our, our pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time, if you're new here, we are so glad to have you with us. I, I still remember what it's like to go to a church for the very first time. And so we're just glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. That you fit right in and make yourself at home here at the Vista. Before we jump in, one quick thing to let you know about, and that is that our Ash Wednesday service is coming up here on March the 2nd in about a week and a half. If you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service before, it's, it's a worship service where we remind ourselves, it kind of kicks off the journey toward Easter, and in this worship service, we remind ourselves that we're sinners who are going to die one day. Isn't that great? It really is great, though, I promise, because here's the deal. Instead of just needing to deny that, that we're sinners who are going to die, we can boldly confess it because we know that our sinfulness and mortality won't get the last word because we know that Jesus is going to get the last word. And the last word is going to be Easter. The last word is going to be resurrection. And so make sure that you get the Easter season kicked off the right way by joining us for Ash Wednesday on March the 2nd. We'd love to see you there. All right, now today we are, we are wrapping up our seven-week series called This Is Water. A uh, series where, you know, we've kind of used the old adage as our jumping off point. It's tough to talk to a fish about water. And in this series, you and me, we're the fish, and we've been trying to talk about some of the waters that we find ourselves swimming in together. Certain moods, certain movements, certain beliefs, certain behaviors that we are all so immersed in that it can be difficult for us to see and understand them precisely because we're so immersed in them. And, you know, we haven't fully conquered the seven seas, but I think we've covered some good ground, yeah? We've talked about identity, technology, individuality, fragility. Dave did a wonderful job last week talking about anxiety. And today we're going to wrap the series up by talking together a bit about authenticity. That's the word today. They all have to end in Y, authenticity. So I know it's early, so I'm going to start off by... Tossing us all a softball. You ready? You ready for this one, John? Left-handed pitcher? Uh, Here's the softball. Show of hands for everybody who thinks that authenticity is important. Think authenticity is important. Raise your hand. Isn't this unbelievable, y'all? Look at this. Every hand in the house is up, y'all. We live in very divided times. You know this, where we struggle to agree upon the most basic of facts. We struggle to agree that the sky is blue, that water is wet, that Dak is a good but not great QB. We need to be able to admit these things, people. And yet somehow, in these divided times, we can all agree that authenticity is important and it's good, which is fantastic. So, you know, two cheers, two thumbs up. Hooray, authenticity. But a funny thing can happen when everybody agrees about something. Any of you seen the uh, documentary? I think it's just a couple years old. It's called Made You Look. It's on uh, Netflix right now. It's very interesting. Uh, It tells the true story of the largest art heist, largest art fraud, technically, in American history. So long story short, back in the early 2000s, this very prestigious New York art gallery is approached by this uh, heretofore anonymous person claiming to have this enormous treasure trove of classic art. We're talking pieces by people like Jackson Pollock, so million dollar pieces of art. And of course, there's uh, some initial skepticism when an anonymous person just shows up claiming to have some Jackson Pollock paintings from this, you know, uh, mysterious collector. But a lot of experts, they looked at these paintings, they validated them as authentic despite the very questionable story of their origins. Things just picked up steam from there. A lot of very, very rich people bought these paintings for a lot of money. They were exhibited in world-class art exhibits all over the world. 
And it was not until many years later that it was discovered that every single one of these paintings was fake. Right, so as it turns out, there was this brilliant Chinese painter who was a master at replicating classic works of art. So he gets together with this con man in New York and they swindle the professional art establishment to the tune of $80 million. And you've got to watch the documentary just for all these interviews with billionaires and they're very upset that they were sold this fake art. And you realize though that they're mainly upset because now we all know that they don't know the difference in real art and fake art. You'll get a very sick satisfaction out of it, I can, I can promise you. They can afford it, they're fine. And among other things, the documentary shows us how a large consensus about something can make us dumb about it, all right? Because, you know, there are all these waving red flags, right? Like, it could not have been clear, hey, this art is not real, right? This anonymous person just shows up with all these paintings, and yet once everybody had agreed that the art was authentic, everybody started ignoring all the waving red flags because everybody had agreed that all the art was authentic. All that to say, when everybody agrees on something, it is very easy for us to turn our brains off collectively and get very dumb about it together. And so when you see everybody agreeing about something, you ought to at least get a little bit uncomfortable about it because there's a good chance we've gotten dumb about it. All that to say, we all agree that authenticity is great. You saw it, every hand in the house. We all agree that authenticity is great, which is great. But precisely because of this, it has become very difficult for us to discern the difference in, uh, shall we say, authentic authenticity and inauthentic authenticity. Which brings us to our first very important question this morning. What is authenticity? We talk about it a lot, but what exactly is it? When we ask this question, of course, what we're really asking is what? What does it mean for a person to be authentic? And uh, as was the case with technology, this is one of those topics in which just going to the Bible for a bunch of direct answers isn't going to do us much good. Because authenticity, as you and me tend to think about it, it's, duh, it's very modern. We're modern people. Whereas the Bible is, uh, you know, duh, very not modern. And this is just kind of Bible 101. You cannot expect an ancient book to have direct answers to all of your modern questions, okay? Questions like, what is authenticity? For various reasons, this is not a question that, you know, Moses or King David or the Apostle Paul were asking themselves. And so like we did with technology, what we're going to do today is explore some biblical wisdom. And again, wisdom is more valuable than answers, when it comes to authenticity. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in two places in the New Testament, both of them the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4, and then Colossians 3. Ephesians 4, 17 through 25, and then Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Paul says similar things in both these texts. Be on uh, the screen for you as well. Paul says, So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, 
which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's Ephesians 4. Now, Colossians 3, 1 through 11, should sound a little similar. A few pages over to the right. Paul says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, because of all that, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Colossians 3 1 through 11. I know what you're thinking. I do. Thinking Austin, um, neither of those texts are about authenticity. And you're right. You're right. You got me. Neither of those texts are about authenticity as we tend to think about it. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that both of those texts are about authenticity as the Apostle Paul tended to think about it. And I would like to further suggest that old Ancient Paul has a few things to teach modern you and me about authenticity. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take Paul's thoughts on authenticity from Ephesians and Colossians. And we're going we're to put them over here on the stove, okay, and let them cook a little bit. Better yet, we'll, we'll put them on the grill. We'll put them on the traker. We'll let them smoke up a little bit. Right? Because before we can really chew on authenticity, according to Paul... I think we need a little bit more clarity as to what exactly authenticity is according to you and me. So we talk about it all the time. What exactly is? What do we modern people mean when we talk like we do so much about authenticity? And if we can all agree that authenticity is a very good thing, the other thing that we can mostly all agree on is that the patron saint of modern authenticity is quite obviously Dr. Brene Brown. Any Brene Brown fans in the house? Oh, she's great. She's a Central Texas girl. You can tell she's got that Topo Chico in the picture. She's trying to signal that she's one of us. Right? She's great. Uh, she teaches at U of H now, I believe, University of Houston. Her first really big book was called The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. Highly recommend it. Fantastic book. In it, she gives a wonderful definition of authenticity. This is what she says. Authenticity is the daily practice. I like that of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Authenticity, the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Feel like that's a good definition? I feel like that's a great definition of authenticity because it is miserable spending your whole life faking it, isn't it? I mean, I I know that so many of us have wasted so much of our lives because I've seen it, I've lived it, trying to live up to other people's expectations of us, 
trying to suppress or deny things about ourselves that cannot and should not be suppressed, right? We're trying to suppress it out of fear or shame or obligation, things that cannot and should not be suppressed, but rather they should be embraced because they just are who we are. Nothing is more miserable than pretending like you're something you're not. And the modern emphasis on authenticity has been an incredible blessing to humanity. It has. Like, y'all, if I had lived, I don't know, let's pick a number, 200 years ago, if I lived 200 years ago, then I probably would have worked in business and or finance because that's what my dad did. And 200 years ago, what you did, it was what your dad did. That's what everybody did. You did what your dad did. If you were a girl, then you did what your mom did, which was have the babies and make the house. Those were your options, okay? And nobody cared if you liked it. Nobody cared. Or you felt called to it. Or you thought it was who you really were. Because who you really were was completely determined by something else, by somebody else. So you didn't really have much say in who you really were. Like if you got up to your dad 200 years ago, I mean like, Dad, I don't think I'm called to be a farmer. I feel like the Lord has called me to, to do something else. You know what your dad would have done? He would have jack slapped you, fed you to a grizzly bear. That's what would have happened. I'm not condoning it. If you've got a toddler, you understand. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying that's the way it was. It's the way it worked. And I like to think I could have made it in business and or finance. I'm, I'm a bright guy. I know two plus two equals five. But it's just a life that would not have been authentic to me. I would have spent my whole life trying to live up to something that I'm just not. And what's true for me is true for most all modern people. It is for every single person in this room. Because the modern emphasis on authenticity has been an incredible source of liberation, justice, and happiness for the human race. It has made us more honest with ourselves more patient with others and less beholden to unhealthy forms of servitude and obligation where who we are is overly determined, determined by external forces by somebody else. And so again, two thumbs up, hooray, authenticity. Are you ready for the but? It's not a but, it's an and yet. And yet, while we all agree that authenticity is, is a wonderful thing, it's a wonderful thing, we want to say hooray authenticity, I think that we also all sense that we probably need to be able to say a little bit more than hooray authenticity, right? You know, because as good as, for example, Brene Brown's definition is, and it is great, it does kind of leave the most important question unanswered, doesn't it? Right, namely... If authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are, the big question is what? Who gets to decide who we are exactly? Like, is it Brene Brown? Like, who, who exactly gets to decide who we are? And we got to talk for just a moment about philosophy. Don't leave. You can get some coffee if you want. I'll make it very quick and painless, but... We need at least an elementary understanding of something that philosophers and theologians call the inward turn. Okay, the inward turn. Long story short, the basic idea is that for most of history, we looked for meaning, guidance, and authority by looking where? By looking without. Right? Who we are and are supposed to be was primarily determined by something out there by somebody else, by God, or by the gods, or by the king, or by the society, or by your family, like whatever. But we looked without for meaning, guidance, and authority. But as we have already noted, 
This is not how we think anymore, is it? I don't think like that. You don't, none of us think like that anymore. And the inward turn marks this millennia-long process. It was not instant. It's millennia-long process by which we increasingly came to look for meaning, guidance, and authority by looking where? By looking within. Meaning who we are and are supposed to be is now primarily determined by who? By me. I'm the one who determines that. And this is not to say that, oh, you know, now we just, we've forgotten about God and we just look to ourselves instead of God, blah, 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 blah. No, that's the, the sloppy Christian fundamentalist buffoon critique. You don't want to go there. But it is to say that even when we look for God, and we do, we're all here today looking for God. Look at this, it's amazing. Even when we look for God, we do tend to look for God where? Within. So, for example, when we say something like, hey, God spoke to me. And you ever said that? I've said, I've said it all the time. I feel like God speaks to me. You felt like God has spoken to you. You've heard somebody else say it. When we say that, what do we tend to mean? We mean we had some thought, some feeling, some intuition that we then interpreted as God speaking to us, right? God speaks to us within. And we tend to be very skeptical of people who are like, no, dude, literally, God spoke to me out loud. Like, what do you do when somebody says that to you? I know what I do. When someone says, no, Austin, literally, God spoke to me out loud. I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> was this after that third bourbon or the fourth? After the first puff or the second? God does a lot of speaking. After that first puff, I don't know. All this to say, as children of the inward turn, we moderns have come to think of authenticity primarily as being true to myself as defined by myself. And furthermore, we tend to define being true to ourselves primarily in terms of being true to how we feel Right now. So modern authenticity is primarily conceived as an obligation to express and act on how we feel right now. And again, we are all wrapped up in this. This is not a, oh yeah, some people really do that. No, we all do this. We all do this. We all think this way. And I think we mostly all sense that when authenticity becomes so deeply tied to how we feel right now, things can get weird. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen it get weird? I know you have. All right, so I knew this guy in seminary. Great guy, fantastic guy, smart, good pastor. Uh, and then one day he surprised a lot of us when he just left his church because he and his wife had decided that they wanted to enter into a, a polyamorous marriage. Okay, so this is a marriage that's kind of an open marriage where they're intimate with multiple people, but everybody knows, right? Everything's above board. Everybody knows, and everybody's okay with it. So, uh, you know, I guess it's cool. And uh, his rationale for it included some of the standard, you know, oh, the Bible sexuality is so outdated, which, like, there are some questions we should ask, but that's kind of a pretty broad critique to make. But even more so, his, his primary rationale is that uh, he was entering into a polyamorous marriage because he felt like, for him, monogamy was inauthentic. Right? Monogamy did not feel right. It did not feel authentic to him and his wife. And look, it does not always result in um, the extreme of a polyamorous marriage. But over the years, y'all, I have heard so many different versions of this basic story. I have told so many versions of this basic story. People coming to believe that they have a moral obligation to be true to themselves, primarily defined as being true to how they feel 
right now. And then this alleged obligation, it picks up steam, right? And it starts going downhill. And there are no brakes on this thing, right? There are no brakes on this thing. And very quickly, we find ourselves hurtled headfirst into this very weird abyss of the self that we justify by telling ourselves what? That we're just being what? We're just being authentic. I'm just being authentic. How could it be wrong? I'm just trying to be true to what I feel on the inside. I'm just trying to be authentic. But yo, hey, newsflash, you know this, newsflash. You can authentically be a jackass. I should know. It is my most authentic self. I promise you. My wife has tried to help me on this, and I tell her, babe, I have to be true. You, I have to let go of who you think I'm supposed to be. I need to embrace the stubborn mule of a man that the Lord has made. And then second of all, this is another newsflash. Hopefully you know this. Hopefully you've heard this said out loud at some point. But just newsflash, y'all. Monogamy is not natural for anybody. Everybody wants to sleep with a lot of people. We don't tell monogamy is not natural for me. Well, you get a ticket and you get in line, buddy. We don't practice monogamy because it's natural. You want to practice monogamy? Because Jesus Christ said to. We believe he knows better than us what is good for us and our families and our world. Monogamy is not natural for me. Get a number and get in line, man. You're not special. Anyways, the modern emphasis on authenticity is good. It's good. But when it becomes the good, the supreme good, then we very quickly find ourselves in the middle of what philosophers would call some very serious weirdness. That's the technical term for it. And so how can old ancient Paul help modern you and me make sure that our authenticity is actually authentic and not just an excuse for indulging what Rowan Williams has called the dramas of the will. And a lot of modern talk about authenticity as just the dramas of the will. All right, so let's go back to our text. Can you smell it? Ah, it's good. It's ready now. All right, so in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, we have a description of this transformation that God brings in our lives through Christ, and it's primarily described in terms of what? Taking off the old self and then putting on the new self. That's what Paul says. Ephesians 4, Paul says, lay aside the old self, put on the new self. Colossians 3, he says, since you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. And most scholars uh, agree that this is language that is drawn from the ancient Christian practice of baptism. I have that right, Adam Wynn? Yeah, the ancient, we got a New Testament scholar in the house. You got to be careful when they're in the house. Um, <laughs> ancient Christian language about baptism. Wherein the baptizees in the early Christian church, they would, they would disrobe, just be there, you know, all natural in your whitey tidies. Uh, you'd be anointed with oil. And just as an aside, can you imagine that on this big screen going down? It would cull the herd real quick, wouldn't it? We found out who really wanted to be baptized, but that's, that's how they did it. They're much more comfortable in their bodies, sanctioned people. So you do that. Uh, you would then uh, denounce the devil and profess the Trinity, go into the waters, be baptized, and upon coming out, you would then be clothed with the white robe of a saint. Isn't that cool? I like that last part. Maybe not the first part, but I, I like that part. White robe of a saint. And this is clearly what Paul is alluding to with this language in the disrobing and then robing of baptism as he describes what God in Christ has done and is doing to transform us. Okay? And so God in Christ, through the Spirit, is stripping away the old false self and putting on the new true self. And when Paul leans in and gets specific about, okay, like what does that mean though? What does it look like? He talks about a lot of different things, 
but he puts the primary accent on what? On embracing and telling the truth. Stripping aside the old stuff, putting on the new stuff, what does that mean? It means you become somebody who embraces and tells the truth. That's what it means. Let's go back and look. Ephesians 4, 20-25. Paul says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of what? Of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, you speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You embrace and you tell the truth. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That's the example he uses. Don't lie to one another because you laid aside the old self and you've put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the one who created, according to the image of the one who created him. Among other things, this seems to be a description of how the apostle Paul thought about authenticity. And while it is not in direct contradiction with, say, Brene Brown's, it is in what I would call a very helpful, fruitful tension with it, right? They're not in contradiction, but they are in tension, and all good thought comes out of tension, because according to Paul, man, being true to yourself, is, it's great. It's good. It's great so long as you understand that the truest thing about you is Christ. And so according to Paul, right, authenticity is less about you being true to yourself and it's more about you being true to Christ. But we need to be really clear here. We need to be clear. There is no contradiction here, right? You see it? There's no contradiction because if Jesus is the truest thing about you, then this means the only way that you can ultimately be true to yourself is by being what? Is by being true to Christ, right? You don't have to choose between being true to myself and being true to Jesus. Jesus is the truest thing about you. And so the only way to be true to yourself is to be true to Christ. In closing, if we could teleport Paul to the future, you know? Bring him in. He reads Brene Brown's book. And him and Brene have a conversation about authenticity. What do you think Paul would say? He's not here to speak for himself, so I'll do my best. (laughs) Um, I think Paul would affirm a lot of it. I do. I think he'd be like, this is great. You're telling me I didn't have to be a tent maker like my dad was? I could have done whatever I wanted. I could have been a podcaster. Can you imagine Paul with a podcast? Some of y'all think Joe Rogan's crazy. Good Lord. Paul would have been canceled so fast. Been unbelievable. Oh, he would have been happy about that. I could have been a famous podcaster. Ah, I missed my call. But then I think he might he might also suggest that we have made authenticity a little bit more complicated than it has to be. Right? Maybe we have. I think we'd say, hey, modern authenticity—it's a good development. It's great. But in order to put some brakes on it, okay, and everything needs some brakes, in order to put some brakes on it, so that you don't hurdle yourself head first into this very weird abyss of the self as defined by myself being true to myself, in order to avoid that, maybe you should think of authenticity more in terms of honesty and truth. Aren't those simple words? Right? What is authenticity when you boil it all down and get past it? It's honesty 
And truth, because for Paul, the formula for authenticity was really simple, so simple. Live an honest life and be true to Christ. You know how to do that. Live an honest life and be true to Christ. And hopefully I don't even have to say that I am not saying that thinking about your feelings is bad and mental health is narcissism and blah, 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 blah. Nope, we have, I think most of the therapists in Bell County attend our church and we could use a lot more of them, frankly. Um, And I think we should also say that the Apostle Paul, clearly not the most mentally healthy dude, right? Man said some crazy stuff. Remember Galatians? He gets mad at these people and he tells them that he wishes they would uh, castrate themselves, mutilate their own genitals. Remember that one? It's not a thing a mentally healthy man says. I feel like he could have used some time with Ty Leonard, is what I think. Ty could have helped him out a little bit. And yet all that to say, the Apostle Paul was nevertheless one of the most authentic people to ever live. He was. Because he lived an honest life. Poured out in service to others instead of self. A life that was authentic because it was true to Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We don't deserve to be here. We're here because of your great mercy. Every breath in, every breath out is grace, and we gratefully receive it as your creatures this morning. We come before you, God. Uh, Man, a lot of old friends in the room today, a lot of new friends, and we just confess together that there is... um, God, there's a lot in us where we have been faking it. We've been trying to pretend like we're something we're not, trying to live up to other people's expectations for the life we're supposed to live, the way we're supposed to behave, blah, 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 blah. And that's a burden that we need to let down. There are ways in which every single one of us need to let go of who others have told us we're supposed to be and embrace who we are. But then we also confess that uh, that can get a little weird at a certain point, God, and we can get lost in it all. We can get lost in this very weird abyss of the self being true to the self as defined by the self. And we can forget that, God, our ultimate call is not to be true to ourselves, but it's to be true to you. Because you know what we're made for. And only then can we be true to ourselves. And so that's going to work itself out in a lot of ways this morning. We just pray that you would have your way with us. We open up our hearts. Please move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.